I was sitting on the ground recording data and I was in very, I couldn't see maybe more than like four or five feet in any direction when I hear very loud crunching walking and you don't know what it is. Is it a deer? Is it an elk? How you hear pops a moose head about 10 feet from me, like about to come down the trail. And it was like, oh no. Luckily she was as scared as I was and ran the other way, but you never know. Welcome to Your Wild Place, a podcast about the wild people and places of North Idaho and Montana. I'm your host, Jack Peterson. Today we're talking to Laura Wolf, a wildlife biologist for the Idaho Department of Fish and Game based out of Coeur d'Alene. She specializes in mountain goats, but has a wealth of knowledge about all other local wildlife. My name is Laura Wolf. I grew up in Seattle um, and I've been interested in wildlife from a young age. Um, Many of my family vacations involved going to national parks and exploring different habitats and viewing animals. Um, I traveled down to UC Davis to get my undergrad in wildlife biology and there I started to explore different um, technician positions. So I worked with salmon uh, heading up streams in the north coast of California. I worked for the Forest Service in the Sierras. Um, And then I went to Zion National Park where I got to study peregrine falcons, Mexican bulls, and desert tortoises. So it was just really fun to explore different habitat types and and different wildlife species. Um, And because I wanted to get a job, I kept on in my schooling and, and got a master's studying the population dynamics of feral pigs in Georgia, which uh, is very different than what I do now, uh, but a lot that you can apply in terms of how you capture and handle wildlife, different species, um, even though it's not the same animal here in Idaho. Um, My professor actually took a job midway through my degree in in Missoula, Montana, so I decided to, to head back west with him, and I was very interested in working in the western U.S. I love the mountains, and um, I love the deserts as well. Um, and then I was able to get my first permanent job uh, with the state of Idaho, working for Idaho Department of Fish and Game in Salmon. And there I got to do a lot of fun things, working with sage grouse populations, coloring mule deer. Uh, we uh, translocated a population group of mountain goats to the salmon region um, with radio collars on them. So I got to follow those goats around and, and look at reproduction. So I got to do a lot of different things there in salmon before I moved up to Coeur d'Alene about 10 years ago. Hmm. Was it was there another place you think you might have ended up if not uh, Idaho? If if mm-hmm. would you you know would you have gone back to could you have gone back to Georgia or someplace else if they if the job had opened up there instead of here? Do you think or was it always? I really wanted to. I really wanted to be in yeah. the West. Yep. I yeah. Really, yeah. I love. I really. I love the mountains. I, I want to be near mountains, and so that was a big, <laughs> a big push. And there's a lot of jobs. There's a lot of obviously public land in the West, and so there's uh, quite a bit of opportunities to work for, you know, whether it be the BLM or a state agency or Fish and Wildlife Service. So a lot of options. What's your day to day life like right now in as wildlife biologist? So I have have a unique position with Fish and Game where I get to do both uh, big game population work as well as habitat work. So um, primarily I'm working with species like deer, elk, moose, 
bears, lions, wolves. Those are kind of like the, the top big mm-hmm. six. Um, but I get to do a lot of work both with the Forest Service trying to help plan uh, large scale projects that benefit wildlife, as well as private landowners who want to improve wildlife habitat on their properties. So out of all those animals, do you have a specialty or maybe a favorite? Um, I never had a favorite animal growing up, but uh, as soon as I started working with mountain goats in the salmon region, they uh, soon rose to the top. And so I'm especially fond of mountain goats. I was able to work on the statewide mountain goat management plan a few years ago and, and get to know populations around the state and do aerial surveys in a variety of places. So it's yeah, one of my favorite animals and one of my favorite things to study doing that that kind of study are you you know do you ever actually go up and like are you touching the mountain goats are you or just well it's always a good idea to keep your distance um when we captured the goats from non-native range in utah to bring them into the salmon region the the translocated Mm -hmm. population those goats you are handling so i actually physically attached the the radio collars to those goats and then once we released them um i was able to study them from afar. So that was with binoculars or spotting scopes or sometimes in a helicopter um, where we were, you know, seeing how they were doing over time. Um, if, if they died because they have a radio color, we can hear that they have a mortality signal. I was able to go and investigate uh, mortality causes um, in the spring, look at, look to see how many of the nannies had kids. So kind of a wide range of things uh, here in North Idaho, where we don't have radio colored mountain goats. Primarily, we have done aerial surveys from the helicopter as well as ground surveys, which um, are considerably more difficult (laughs) to Mm. try to observe these goats in their um, in their native range. So what what do you what does a ground survey entail? Are you like staked out? You just pick a spot and you sit with your binoculars and look for goats? Much. You try to get as many people as possible out there so that you are Mm. you're observing as many of the um, the cliffy bits, um, whether it be in the Selkirks or uh, in the, we tried to do some down in the St. Joe where we have a small population of goats. Um, With the amount of trees we have in North Idaho, it can make observing things from afar very difficult. So you really don't get as good of a count as you would from the air. What's an aerial survey like? So our aerial surveys, which are are much more common in Southern Idaho where it's open country and you can see pretty well. Um, yes, entails going up in a helicopter, typically a pilot and two observers. So two biologists who are uh, counting and recording data. So um, elk surveys and deer surveys are um, a bit more structured in terms of having a specific subunit. So you're flying the entire drainage looking for animals, whereas mountain goats, you are flying um, mountain goat habitat specifically. So they're going to be only found in rocky areas. They're not in the wintertime traipsing across snow covered ground. So you can um, yeah, kind of pick and choose where you want to fly to look for the goats. So most aerial surveys are done in the winter because animals group up typically. And so you have larger concentrations and they're on, many animals are on what we call winter range. So they're going to be in more open habitats. Even in North Idaho, they're going to be more apt to be found kind of in brushy, brush field type um, habitats. Uh, Mountain goats, it depends on where you are in the state or even in the west as to whether people prefer to fly summer surveys, spring surveys, or winter surveys for goats. I prefer to fly winter surveys where I can see tracks on the ground, um, but it really depends on what part of the state you're in as to which is a more effective survey. As we speak, it's March, so not exactly prime outdoor time. 
What are you working on now? Right now, I am, I'm a little bit slower in the field work portion and spending mm-hmm. a bit more time in the office um, updating our elk habitat priority area maps. Um, typically, every other year in the winter, we're doing season setting for our hunting season, so that can be a busy time. Um, this year is not a season setting year, so we're um, working on other projects, uh, but we do collar deer, elk, and moose in the winter, and we we um, want to investigate what may cause these animals to die. So mm. um, animals are in their poorest condition late winter, early spring, right before the green up happens and they get some fresh grass in their stomachs. So um, any of those animals that die, we, we investigate the mortalities and try to figure out what happened. And that's typically, you know, February through May is a busy time for that in, in severe winters. We're having a very mild winter this year, so it hasn't mm-hmm. been so busy. My interest is peaked. So are you out in the field determining cause of death like a TV detective? Yep. Wildlife, wildlife necropsies are um, just like a crime scene trying to figure out which footprints, what happened, are there drag trails, are there predator hairs, was the animal, was it an accident, you know, all sorts of fun stuff. What or who is usually the culprit? With our ungulates, so we're primarily um, in my office, we are collaring elk calves, six-month-old elk mm-hmm. calves, so we collar them in January, and um, mountain lions are the number one cause of death um, mm-hmm. in most years. Sometimes we have particularly hard winters with a lot of snow, and, and those years, uh, malnutrition can actually tie mountain lion deaths, so these are just animals that didn't quite have enough fat, body fat, to make it through the winter. So primarily uh, in the past, we had collars that, that remained on females. So as those female calves became cows, those collars, collars stayed on those animals um, for their lifetime. And the battery life ranges from, you know, three to four years typically. So if they died, you know, let's say they, you know, they died when they were three, we would still go investigate and see what happened. Um, we were also collaring adult uh, elk. And so those ranged in age so some of them you know when they died might have been 10 years old or 12 years old um now we're we're primarily putting on collars that have these blow-off mechanisms so we can schedule them to blow off and then we can retrieve the collar Um, and we do this because when we get the collar back in hand we actually get a lot more data even though these collars do transmit data to a satellite so we get points and we know where they are um, because I think it might be related to the thick canopy cover we have here with all the trees. Not all of those points make it to our computers, but if we get the collar back, we can have all the locations where that animal spent its life. So between surveys and the radio collars, are you able to tell how many of all these different animals there are out there? How many animals live in this area? That is a great question that we hope to answer soon. Um, we, <laughs> I mentioned that we do aerial surveys in a lot of the state where we can count mm. all of these animals that gather up in winter range. Well, here in North Idaho, it's very hard to count animals through the trees. You just can't see them mm-hmm. very well. So we have moved to actually putting cameras out to try to get estimates of lots of different species at once. Um, so mm-hmm. This is in the very beginning stages. Um, we have like rough estimates for the St. Joe right now for the very first year that we had those cameras out. And we're talking 250 cameras out in each of these steady areas. So we're putting a lot of cameras out. Yeah. Um, 
And we should be able to get really good estimates, particularly for like white-tailed deer and uh, hopefully uh, bears, as well as elk we're still working on right now, um, and moose as well. So the, this is uh, up and coming, really new techniques that have been developed in recent years. And we're excited about being able to get no actual population estimates that we haven't had in the past. How about tracking movement? What can you see about how the animals migrate at different times of year? Yeah, migration is a really interesting topic that we're learning a lot more about. Um, it seems like it depends on what species you're talking about and, and where in the panhandle. So um, most of our ungulates do move some um, for based on the seasons. And so typically that's going to be a movement down in elevation and towards south-facing slopes that don't hold as much snow, um, where it's a little bit easier to move around. But um, from coloring our white-tailed deer, we found that about half of them actually don't migrate at all. They are residents in the area that we catch them. So that's valley bottoms where they're mm -hmm. happy winter and summer. Um, with our elk, most of the elk in North Idaho do move some. Um, it's not as extensive as some of the movements that you'll see, you know, in Southern Idaho or Wyoming. Um, so they might move, oh, five to 10 miles between their, their seasonal ranges. Um, moose also do move some as well. Um, and a lot of that's just trying to get down to where there's less snow. It's a lot of work yeah. be moving through four feet of snow. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, uh, migratory birds where they're really picking up and, and totally changing. It's just kind of, it's more, yeah, just looking for less, a cozy spot to spend the winter, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. And then mm -hmm. the, the predators are going to follow them, right? So they're going to want to be where their food source is. So they're going to change some of their movements slightly in the, in the wintertime as well. So besides migration, the other famous winter adaptation is hibernation. Do we have any hibernating animals in this area? Yeah, we do. Of course, we have black bears mm -hmm. as well as grizzly bears. Yeah. Um, and and they they hibernate, um, but not in the way that I think a lot of people think of hibernation in terms of, you know, rodents or other small mammals. So um, bears actually don't hibernate in the true sense of hibernation. They go through what's called torpor, which is a little bit different. So they slow down their heart rate and their breathing, but they don't lower their body temperatures um, and they don't wake up to urinate or defecate like uh, other animals who actually hibernate do, which is interesting. They Bears do not wake bears up. Do not. The, they, the, they stop the process. What drives an animal to adapt to hibernation instead of staying awake all winter? Bears are really om omnivores. And so the yeah. majority of the food they're getting is, is plants, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and the big bulk of it is berries. So they're bulking up on huckleberries and other berries in the late summer and fall. And that's the majority of their food source. Mm -hmm. um, and even in the spring, in the spring, they might find a carcass and, and scavenge that. But again, they're mostly eating grasses and tubers um, mm -hmm. that they're finding. So um, while they're om omnivores like we are, they probably have much less meat in their diet than most humans do anyway. And so there's nothing to eat for them in the winter. And so it's a good time to, to settle down and sleep. Wouldn't a, like a goat or a deer also want to hibernate during the winter? Like what what's the... What makes it different? Right. But they have a, they have a diet, which allows them to still mm. find food. Right. So they're going to be yeah. eating branches and, 
they might dig for old grasses and they're going to eat, you know, Douglas fir needles. So there's food for them that they eat on, on a normal basis. It's certainly not as nutritious as what they're going to find in the spring and summer, but what bears are looking for is not available. Okay. What about mountain goats? What do they do in the wintertime? Yeah, mountain goats are super fascinating. I mean, everyone knows that they're found in these steep, rocky, cliffy habitats. And um, depending on where we are in the state, they do different things. So here in North Idaho, um, in the summertime, they're using those really rocky ridge lines, like the top of the Selkirks, the Selkirk Crest is a great top, or Scotchman Peak, where people see goats often. Uh, but in the wintertime, those areas are covered in like 10 to 12 feet of snow and they can't move around in that kind of snow. So they actually move down um, onto smaller bits, little rocky outcroppings um, that are steep enough to slough the snow off. So they're finding these very steep cliffy bits where the snow is not sticking and they mm -hmm. can hang out and they actually have very small home ranges in the winter. They don't really move around much. They're protected from predators on these rocks and they kind of just eke out a living on lichens and, you know, branches, needles, that sort of thing, just nibbling on things that they can find on those rocks. They also grow that famous winter coat, right? Yeah, well, that, yeah, so to be able to survive the winter, yeah, they grow a very long, shaggy coat. It's, I mean, all animals do put on extra hair in the winter, but yeah, mountain goats are probably the most noticeable for their very long, shaggy coats, especially in the spring when they start shedding it. Um, so yeah, that keeps them warm. Um, and they don't do a lot of trekking across to different rock piles or cliffs. They really stay in that one spot. And part of that is because the, the kids and the yearlings are considerably smaller than their, the adults. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of energy to try to trek through the snow. So they try to reduce energy expenditure just to make it through the winter. Does the human habitat intersect with the mountain goat habitat in the wintertime at all? Not a lot of humans, but there are populations of goats that are impacted by snowmobiling and snow bike use, um, especially with these machines that are able to go further and faster and really make it into some of that mountain goat country. So is that dangerous? Yeah, it's not dangerous to the people, but it, mm. it potentially has impacts on, on mountain goats. Um, we know that they're very sensitive to motorized vehicles nearby. Mm -hmm. They're very, very sensitive to helicopter use. Um, we don't know if this encourages them to move. So are they expending more energy and moving to a new spot or are they just getting stressed out, increasing stress hormones, which can also burn more calories. So regardless, disturbing any wildlife in the winter is, is risky because they're really just trying to hang on until springtime comes. As those winter recreation activities expand their reach are you seeing it reflected in the mountain goat habitat are the goats like having to move to make way for winter sport so we don't really know and we don't have we have very few mountain goats radio colored in the state particularly native herds where you see this snowmobile use like in the mm -hmm. sawtooths um, or even some of the selkirks um, so we just don't really have that that answer right now how about in the scotland peaks what is the chance a person is likely to cross paths with a goat if they're out recreating? Well, in Scotchmans, it's very good. Um, mm -hmm. those, those goats, I mean, that is native range for mountain goats, um, but I'm sure that um, 
human behavior has encouraged those goats to stick around longer or have um, more of them visit because they're getting salt rewards from urine and skin, as well mm -hmm. as I'm sure either accidental or purposeful uh, feeding of goats. So they're getting uh, kind of double rewards when they when they visit the Scotchman's. So uh, and that is unfortunate because it can change uh, mountain goat behavior from being a wild goat to to being a habituated animal or, or a food or salt conditioned animal. So they're not acting like quite like a normal wild animal anymore. And that can be dangerous for people um, as well as goats. If they, as the saying goes, you know, if a fed bear is a dead bear and that can be translated to most wildlife species. If they are fed too much, they're going to become uh, uh, first an annoyance and then dangerous. What can be done or is being done to keep both people and mountain goats safe in the Scotchmans? I think the, the, the trail ambassadors um, that the French have um, been working with. Interjecting here. Sorry about the Zoom breakup. That's the Friends of Scotchman Peaks trail ambassador program she's talking about. And the Forest Service, as well as Fish and Game, over the last several years have really helped um, because a lot of it is about educating uh, the people that are hiking. Um, the goats are just, you know, doing what goats do and, you know, sometimes getting some yummy salt, which they absolutely love. Um, mm -hmm. But I think making sure people keep their distance, um, particularly even backing up if the goat is approaching. So making sure the goat does not get too close to you and not leaving your pack out and not feeding them, of course. Those sorts of things just help keep wildlife wild. So it seems to be a very successful program. We haven't had any additional incidents since the 2015 um, incident where a hiker was injured. So that's very promising. And that's yeah. the best course. Education is the best course of action. We don't want to have to um, remove a goat who has you know, hurt somebody badly. That is not what we want to do. We want to be able to keep these goats there. Yeah. Um, are the goats... Are they, are they on the endangered species list or anything like that or threatened or anything? Nope. Mountain goats are not. Um, they're mm -hmm. probably roughly mm, 2,500 goats in the state of Idaho. Um, mm -hmm. Different populations are doing different things. Uh, the Selkirk population has been increasing the last couple of decades, which is very encouraging. Um, the cabinet population, which uh, includes Scotchmans, um, and actually most of that population resides in Montana, has been actually declining the last, you know, 15 years or so. So, um, and that's common. A lot of native goat herds in the West have been declining in recent decades. Is that, they're not on the list or anything, or is, is that population decline something that you're, you would say you're concerned about? Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we don't have a lot of answers as to exactly what is causing those declines in some places and not others, but it quite possibly could be related to climate change, um, which with these warmer, hotter, drier summers, it potentially is drying out um, the foods that they eat during the summer. You know, a lot of those alpine species, plant species don't grow real fast. So if you have something that dries them out and you have something that's trying to eat them, they can disappear and not, not replenish as quick as, you know, something in the forest. Hmm. Um, but you, you can, hunt goats is that correct yeah mountain goats are a big game species um, we mm -hmm. don't have currently have any mountain goat tags in the in the selkirk or cabinet population in idaho but montana does offer a tag for the cabinet population on their side of the border um, and there are many other populations in idaho that are considerably larger than these north idaho herds like you know three to five hundred goats where hunting is 
is allowed. The goats are not endangered, but there are some endangered species that live in the area. Is that correct? We have one endangered species that's listed for North Idaho, and that's the woodland caribou, which unfortunately is not residing in the lower 48 anymore. Mm -hmm. The last woodland caribou was captured in 2019 and moved to a population in in British Columbia. Mm. Um, But we do have two threatened species um, that of, of the mammal type that I'm going to talk about today, which include the Canada lynx and the grizzly bear. Okay, let's talk grizzly bear. How does the Idaho Department of Fish and Game interact with grizzlies? So we manage um, the grizzly bears in, in different uh, ecosystems. So we have the Selkirk ecosystem as well as the Cabinet Yak ecosystem. Um, and so those bears have been increasing over the last several decades with protection such as road closures that you know prevent people from going in and and either accidentally or purposely um, shooting them as well as you know disturbing them with vehicles Um, and there have been um, there's been augmentation so bears have been moved from off in montana into these ecosystems to help bolster their population so um for instance, in the late 80s, they estimated 15 grizzly bears in the cabinet yak ecosystem. And mm-hmm. uh, as of recent years, they're estimating 55 to 60 bears. So it, it has increased um, substantially with, um, with the management of these bears. Wow. Uh, do bears also get in, any kind of tracking, you know, collars or anything like that? Yes, many of the grizzly bears do have radio collars, and and if there's ever a bear that's caught and moved into the habitat, um, those Mm -hmm. certainly get uh, radio collars, and that helps them monitor, um, you know, females and how many cubs they have and how cub survival, that sort of thing, so they can help track bears across these ecosystems. How how often do people actually see them? I mean, is is there much overlap between people and bears at all, or... I don't know anybody who's like just been out hiking and seen a grizzly bear in this area personally. I don't hear stories very often. It's much more common to, let's say, see tracks. So for instance, I was going mm-hmm. on an elk mortality and this was in the Coeur d'Alene's, which is not within the actual bear ecosystems, but bears travel, man, they can go a long way, especially those males. Um, and it was early spring, it was probably April and we, there was fresh snow on the ground and we were seeing very fresh bear tracks that were trekking along this forest service road. And we're like, wait a minute, those claws are considerably further from the the pad than a black bear. So that bear had been walking on that road that morning. So that's about as close as I think I've gotten. We see them on our cameras. I mentioned the the trail cameras we're using. So um, that is a common occurrence to see them, um, particularly in the Selkirks, on the priest side, we see quite a few bears on on our camp trail cameras. But yeah, um, it would be fun to see. I would love to see a grizzly bear in North Idaho. Are there grizzly bears in the vicinity of the Scotchman Peaks? Um, yeah, there are certainly bears that are that are using that habitat. Um, the mm-hmm. Cabinet Yak ecosystem, much of that is in Montana, so we just kind of have a like maybe twenty percent of it is on the Idaho side. Um, but yeah, bears are using um, that habitat in Idaho. Um, Boulder Creek is a common spot, which is in the cabinets north of Scotchman. Um, they uh, they will come through the Lightning Creek drainage for sure. Yeah, um, and typically they bring bear. If they bring a bear over, it's going to be a female, which can help with reproduction huh. and, and uh, yeah. increasing the population. That and 
male bears are prone to wandering far and wide. So you bring a bear to an ecosystem and it may not stay there. It decides it wants to go somewhere else. So how do they determine where a bear is going to go when they decide to transplant a grizzly bear? And I don't know exactly what goes into, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure they know where some of their colored bears are. And so they're probably not trying to drop another bear right on top of in a female that already has a home range there. So they probably take into consideration where they already know bears are and maybe picking a spot where there's not as much bear use. Yeah. So you don't have them having to seek out a great spot for them to hang out in. Where are the bears now? Like what kind of spot are they spending the winter in? What, and uh, like, what's a den look like? And also when, when are they going to peek out? Is that happening now? So, so these bears are denning, under you know down trees and root balls maybe even out hollowed hollowed trees a lot of times they're digging out a den so they're coming out of this you know fairly tight spot they try to make it cozy by bringing in you know bear grass leaves or something so it's a little bit softer kind of a nest inside their den um and it's usually the males um that will emerge first and they start emerging in march or early april um those females that have cubs are going to be the last to emerge from dens. Um, but usually by mid-April, most of the bears are out. And they're actually pretty slow when they first come out of the den. They don't move real fast. They hang out near their den. They're, I think they're just kind of like we are before coffee in the morning, right? Just kind of trying uh-huh. to wake up and figure out what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. And then they really uh, start moving to the, the south-facing slopes where they can find green grass. Um, just like the ungulates are. And actually, once you get into like late May, they do seek out um, young fawns and calves. So there's a short window where a bear can catch a, a deer fawn or an elk calf. And so that adds a, a lot of protein to their diet for a short window. So the other species you mentioned was the Canada lynx. Uh, what are they like? Yeah, there there are definitely fewer Canada lynx um, than grizzly bears. Just a handful of sightings that have been in the far north part of the Selkirks and the north, uh, like in the Purcells, right against the Canadian border. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a really fascinating species. Um, obviously, they look a lot like a bobcat, but they've got much longer legs and really big feet. I mean, they're really are snow sh- like snowshoes on the snow. So um, they pretty much only eat snowshoe hares. That is their species. So they are able to move across the snow in the winter and, and seek out snowshoe hares, um, which makes, makes up most of their diet. Yeah. And interestingly, when we're doing mountain goat surveys, mountain goat surveys, the only other species that you usually even see a track of in those elevations where the goats are, are snowshoe hares. So <laughs> lynx could be up in those type of high, high elevation snowy habitats as well. So these species experiencing population decline in our area, are they in great danger? Here in North Idaho, there's a lot of species, even even like moose, where it's like a, they're doing fine in Canada. You know what I mean? Grizzly bears, many of the mm. caribou are doing fine in Canada, but we're just on the, the very southern part of their range. Um, and likely climate change is going to be affecting these species that are on the southern part of their range. How about as the human population grows in the area and the like towns and cities sprawl and head out into the woods, is that causing these animal populations to shrink? It certainly can. I mean, I don't, I can't say that I can pinpoint that it definitely is, but mm-hmm. um, as you, as you break up 
you know, 20 acre parcels into five acre parcels and, and further, you know, five acre parcels into one acre parcels, you are decreasing the, the, the migration routes, the movement routes of small and large animals. So it's certainly going to have an impact as people put up fences, as people build roads, you have, you know, in, an increase in, in mortality, just, you know, due to the increasing number of cars and, um, and, and decrease in the ability for animals to move from where they want to, you know, from one good place to eat to another. Okay. Hey, what about wolverines? I hear they're hanging around out here too. We have had a few sightings of wolverines. Yep. Um, one of them was just not that long ago in Lightning Creek drainage near Scotchman. Um, yeah, they're a neat species. They require a lot of space. Um, they have giant home ranges of, you know, several hundred square miles. And, um, they're awake all, all year long. So they're not hibernating or going to torpor like other mammals. Um, mm -hmm. They do need a good snowpack. So they, they build their dens into the snow at very high elevations and the snow helps insulate them and then the kits that are born in the late winter. So um, yeah, they, um, one of the cool things about Wolverines is that they're just so amazingly powerful. You know, they weigh maybe 30 pounds ish. Um, but they can drag a, a carcass that they've found as they're often scavengers that weighs several times as much as they are up a hill. And so uh, they'll often cache food. So they might eat some and then they want to save it for later. So they'll dig a hole and cache it and cover it in snow. So it stays you know, nice and refrigerated, basically, and they come back later and eat it. Have you ever seen a wolverine? I haven't seen one here, but my wolverine sighting is one of my more exciting ones. I was actually in the Sawtooth Mountains uh, doing, a, doing a mountain goat survey, so I was already having a good day. And uh, we saw a set of tracks that left the, the cliffs where the mountain goats had been and were wandering across the valley, which was like a goat wouldn't do that, would it? So we decided to follow it, and we got a glimpse of this wolverine just as it jumped under a, a conifer tree. So oh, that cool. was pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. As we move to wrap things up here, I have a morbid curiosity about those animal necropsies. Have you ever come across anything really mysterious or unusual scenes where the cause of death wasn't a mountain lion or something predictable? There was an elk um, <laughs> that that we found and, and she was in poor condition. Um, she was not eaten on. So sometimes when, when there's a predator involved, it's a bit easier to figure out what has happened. But this one seemed to be, she was in very poor condition. And then there was a windstorm. She was maybe kind of stuck between some down logs. So because of her poor condition, she couldn't really get out and a tree fell on her and hit her. So it was like a combination of, she couldn't really, she might've died there anyway, but then she got hit by a tree. So yeah, that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, any um, uh, any other any other exciting or uh, dangerous or you know thrilling encounters within uh, with the wildlife in your uh, in your professional capacity? Well, I'd say moose are probably the most exciting. Um, sure. In, in terms of you know people get worried about wolves and bears, but I'm like I feel like moose are a bit more unpredictable. Um, mm -hmm. Luckily, not not like I was chased, but I was sitting on the ground recording data and I was in very, I couldn't see maybe more than like four or five feet in any direction when I hear very loud crunching walking and you don't know what it is. Is it a deer? Is it an elk? 
I hear pops a moose head about 10 feet from me, like about to come down the trail. And it was like, oh no, luckily yeah. she was as scared as I was and ran the other way, but you never know. Yeah. You know, that's about the only thing in North Idaho mm-hmm. that, that you should be worried about and run from. So most of the things, if you're worried about it, you should not run from it, but a moose, it's a good idea to run away. If they're oh, really? acting aggressive or chasing you. Yes. <laughs> other oh, things, interesting. Other animals, you will instigate the chase right like a dog wants to chase something moving or a cat wants to chase something moving yes so yeah a wolf or a bear or a lion you definitely do not want to run what kind of tips do you have for human listeners as regards interaction with wild animals i think the most important thing is is allowing the wildlife to to be wild so obviously people are, are going to enjoy you know these wild areas wilderness areas or not um, and regardless of where they are, just giving animals space and and letting them move on their own accord and not and not trying to get too close. So if you want to take gorgeous photos, you know, use your telephoto lens, use your binoculars, that sort of thing when you're enjoying these these wonderful wild places. Yeah. Finally, looking ahead to summer, are there any uh, any animals that aren't here right now who are going to be heading this way that we might see during the, the summertime? Anything migrate through? Yeah, one of the coolest animals that migrates over this way is the harlequin duck. So this is a duck that spends most of its year in the oceans, um, in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Washington and Oregon, BC. And they fly inland in the late spring, the males and the females, and to steep, rocky streams, so fast-moving streams. And... um, after they mate, um, then the male flies back to the ocean and the female has a, a ground nest near one of these fast moving streams. And as soon as the chicks are born, she's teaching them how to swim in what looks like, you know, class three rapids, practically. They're, they're incredible swimmers diving down and eating aquatic insects. Um, and and they're a species that it does seem to be on the decline and something that we're very interested in. Um, so if people have sightings of any of the species that we've talked about today, we would love to hear about them. Those help us in terms of doing surveys and monitoring. Well, what's next for you? Any big spring projects coming up? We are going to start doing a whole bunch of camera works as soon as some of the snow melts. So I will mm. be all over, yes, including, okay. in, including in the Scotchmans. does it for my conversation with Laura. You can contact the Idaho Department of Fish and Game through their website, idfg.idaho.gov. Thank you for listening to Your Wild Place, a podcast presented by Friends of Scotchman Peaks Wilderness. For more information about the Friends, visit our website, scotchmanpeaks.org. This episode featured Laura Wolf and was edited by me, Jack Peterson. Theme music by Ben Olson and Katie Archer. Subscribe to Your Wild Place wherever you listen to podcasts. Better yet, give Your Wild Place a like and review.